Lord God, Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to be together tonight. And as we spend some time talking about the means of grace, I pray, Lord, that you would bless us and that you would lead us and guide us and, uh, and that you would help us to understand your word. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So when we finished up last time, I think I was kind of pushing some boundaries with you. And uh, um, we're, I'm, I'm going to kind of continue in that vein, but hopefully, you know, by undergirding this with some scripture, you're going to, you know, see where we're coming buy, from. Buy into it, huh? Well, I do, I do hope that you'll buy into it. I'm not going to lie about that. Right. But at the same time, I don't want you to buy into it because that's what I'm saying. Um, I want you to buy into it if you see that that's what the scripture is saying. Because from the very beginning, my commitment has been to say no more and no less than what the scriptures actually say. Okay? So that's, that's what I'm trying to do. And um, just a, a reminder, that whole thing with the, the idea of the means of grace, um, that God has, uh, if you imagine grace placed in this big tank, like a hot water heater type of a tank type of a thing, and that that you know, God is going to deliver that grace to us, that there are kind of three pipes that are coming off of that hot water heater to bring that grace to us. The primary one that we're going to talk, that we've talked about is his word. That he uses his word to deliver his grace to us. But then he also uses baptism and the Lord's Supper to deliver grace, and the forgiveness of sins to us, all right? So, baptism is one of these means of grace. Um, oh, come on, Eric. It is a birth from above. Now, one of the things that's important about this is this, this is from John chapter 3 when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. Um, Nicodemus comes and says, uh, you know, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God because, you know, if you didn't come from God, you wouldn't be able to do the things that, that you are doing and, you know, because, you know, if, if you can't do those things if God's not with, with you. And Jesus looks at him <laughs> and he says, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. I love that. You know, Nicodemus just kind of starts kind of sucking up to him and just Jesus takes the, you know, right in the direction that, that he wants to go. And, uh, and as he continues to talk with him, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so what we see in that is kind of a foreshadowing of baptism because at this point, Jesus hadn't instituted baptism yet. Baptism was around, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. Um, I mean, Jesus was baptized, right? You know, so this was part of the, the Jewish faith to, to baptize people and things, by the way. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and Jesus is, is using this uh, to talk about how we are born again. And... I really want to emphasize, you know, kind of this, this idea that this is something that God does to us. You know, um, in, in using that symbolism of, you know, that imagery of birth, how many of you chose to be born? 
none of us did. You know, it, it, it's a, a gift, you know, that God has given to us. That one he gave to us through our parents. Uh, but in this case, we're talking about a rebirth, a new birth through the power of the Holy Spirit at work through the water and the word in baptism. All right? Um, so it is commanded by our Lord Jesus. And I think that this is where we um, wrapped up last time. Because we talked about Matthew 28, 18 through 20. This is right at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. And I talked about that. You know, the command is not go. The command is make disciples. And he continues, you know, telling us how to do that. He says, make disciples, baptizing and teaching them. It, it, it's a two-pronged process. It, and it's not, you know, necessarily one and two, but you need to have both going on in your life for being a <coughs> disciple. We need to be baptized. We need to be taught. And these are... You know, as I say, things that are, are done to us um, and, uh, and they're things that God does in order to shape us and to form us. Um, you know, in Jesus' last visit with the disciples while he's on earth, he comes to them and he talks about this authority. And in Colossians chapter 2, it says, In Christ, all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. So when Jesus is talking to the disciples and he's talking to us there, this isn't the same thing as, um, you know, me spouting off. You know, this is God speaking to us. This is the one who says, let there be, and there is, right? You know, so it's on the basis of that authority that he says, make disciples, baptize them, teach them. And, and, and those are, are both things that are, are part of how a person becomes a disciple then. And, you know, it, and it's not a suggestion. You know, it's, it's a command, you know, baptizing and teaching. Um, in baptism, God's word of forgiveness becomes a visible word. So in 1 Peter chapter 3, this water symbolizes, when it says this water, First uh, Peter chapter 3, um, Peter is talking about Noah's flood and how God saved Noah and his family through the flood. He says this water, the water of the flood, symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Catch that. Baptism saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the body. Who cares about that? But the pledge of a good conscience toward God. In other words, this gives you a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So in baptism, you know, God is delivering his grace to us. He is using it to give us Jesus' salvation. Um the the blessings of baptism are given to all who believe now this is one of the the spots where i think people get hung up and it's actually uh it's actually a problem that i deal with sometimes 
where people will come and they want to have their babies baptized and then, you know, I'm not going to see them until the kid's in seventh grade and it's time for confirmation class. You know, and it's like, well, I bought the fire insurance because I had him baptized. Well, baptism isn't like that in the sense that um, the theological term for, for this is, is ex opero operato. Um, you know, so it's just basically you, you do the work to do the work. Like magic. You know, it, it's not, you know, boom, you're baptized. Otherwise, if that's how it worked, I mean, we would be hooking up fire hoses all over the place and, you know, just squirting everybody and baptizing people left and right. No, hey, you're all saved now. No. It is faith that receives forgiveness and salvation. Okay? And so it's not just a matter of, you know, water. It's water in the word. And remember, it's a two-part process. Baptizing and teaching. They both have their role to play in bringing someone to faith and shaping and forming them as a follower of Jesus. So when the word of God is connected to the water of baptism, catch that, it's not just, you know, you take the, the person being baptized and pour water on them and they've been baptized. It's, I have baptized you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It, it's, it's God's word connected to that water. You know, that makes it a baptism. It's not just the water. And so in essence, what God is doing is he is bringing his word to that individual through that, that earthly element of, of water. Um, and it, it's true that a, a person might not fully believe in God. Um, I have a question for you then. Okay. If you don't fully believe in God, how can a child who's just been born... We're going to get to that. Okay. Absolutely. Because that is definitely one of the things that we find is different between... Um, different denominations and how we feel about baptizing children, okay? Um, uh, my brother-in-law uh, had a best friend who really got off the track. Drinking, drugs, the whole kit and caboodle. He was big, big, big mess. And um, major problems in the family, obviously. You know, there's a big disconnect that's happening there. And... Um, his sister went back through the family records and found his baptismal certificate. You know, he was baptized as a baby and she framed it and gave it to him for Christmas. Hung it on the wall. And it was an objective reminder of what God had done for him. That when he was a baby, that he was sealed with the Holy Spirit that Jesus did work in his life to draw him to faith and to claim him as his own. It was a transformational moment for him. I'm not saying he was like perfect after that. You know. You said faith receives something in salvation. What was the Faith receives God's promise. God's promise. Okay. But, you know, by taking him back to his baptism, 
reminding him what Jesus had done for him, it shaped and it transformed his life. In baptism, our sins are washed away. Acts 22, verse 16 um, says, What are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. You know, so, you know, baptism does that work in us. You know, he, he adds his word of forgiveness to the water of baptism, and he literally <laughs> washes the sins of the recipient away. <clears throat> and we receive the Holy Spirit in baptism. As it says in Acts chapter 2, um, this is the Pentecost sermon. You know, 4,000 people come to faith, Right? Um, Jesus, or excuse me, Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's not repent and you will receive, the, it's both. Repent, be baptized, and in that process, in that baptism, you're going to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Bless you. Um, and we are clothed with Christ. Um, maybe you uh, um, surfing through the, uh, the, um, the internet or whatever, you know, you've seen the Hollywood, uh, you know, costumes, the, the actors and the actresses and you know, what they wore for Halloween. You know, we always like to see, you know, the gala events, you know, the Oscars or whatever. And people will talk on and on about, you know, these very expensive clothes that the people wear, what designer and all of these things. Well, you have literally been clothed in Christ. And this is a gift uh, that he gives um, from the Holy Spirit. Um, Galatians chapter 3 verse 27 Galatians chapter 3, verse 27 says, For all of you who were baptized into Christ Jesus have clothed yourself with Christ Jesus. You know, so when you're baptized, it's like Jesus wraps his robe around you. You, know, you, know, you don't get to wear an outfit designed by Jesus. You literally put on Jesus. So that when... God looks at you, he does not see your sin, he sees Jesus' righteousness. Um, he no longer sees the flaws and failures, um, but he sees the perfect life, death, and resurrection of his son. That's a great picture. Yeah, it is a fun picture, isn't it? I'm not sure where that came from. I, I've looked for it a few times. In baptism, we are adopted into God's family. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is over all and through all. God becomes your father through 
baptism. I mean, there is a sense that we could say he's everyone's father because he created all people. But the our father, you know, where we know him as a loving father, that happens through baptism, through what Jesus does there. You look like you're getting ready to ask something. A couple things. Okay. Um, Ephesians wasn't Paul, was it? Yep. Did he write Ephesians? Yep. Okay. Um, that's good. Okay. <laughs> One question depended on the other. I, I didn't think he wrote Ephesians. I thought... Yep. No, you, th- you might have been thinking of Hebrews... They're not sure about Hebrews, aren't they? Yeah, there's debate about Hebrews. There's a debate about, like, six of them in there. Uh, Out of 13? Not really. um, Not not heavy debate. Um, I mean, depending upon, like, which strain of the church you're in. You know, so the more conservative, orthodox, you know, historic churches, they tend to be like, yeah, that's all, Paul. You know, the more mainline, sometimes, you know, they'll start asking questions, you know, like the ELCA and, you know, the more liberal branches of things. You know, they're like, yeah, no, it probably wasn't. Um, the only one that, uh, that we look at and say, we're not, we're not really comfortable saying that's the author uh, is Hebrews, in the New Testament, that is. Um, and because uh, Hebrews doesn't identify the author. Um, you know, Paul's letters, you know, they all start, you know... Hi, Paul. Yeah. Or, you know, and, and his entourage, you know. You know. And so, yeah. Okay. And good attestation, you know, for all of those from the early church. So, part of what you're talking about there is, is they do uh, what they call linguistic um, comparisons. And they say, well, Paul writes like this, because he writes like this in Romans. And we're very confident he wrote Romans. But in this letter, it sounds very different. Because a person can't write differently in different contexts. Um, uh, do your kids read uh, the Rick Riordan books yet? Um, Percy Jackson? No, not yet. Okay. So Rick Riordan, uh, he writes these series of books they're for kids. He also writes mystery thriller novels for adults. Very different books. Very different styles, you know. And uh, I got a kick out of this because somebody put together like a doctoral thesis on, you know, you know the, the, this idea. And um, he, they said that, you know, as they compared Paul's letters, they came up with at least four different authors. And so somebody applied the same technology and the same strategy to their thesis, and they came up with another eight for the thing that they themselves wrote. You know, it's just, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a specious idea that you can compare the vocabulary and say, oh, the person didn't write this one. No, he's writing in a different context, and so he writes a little bit differently. You know, it's like writing a letter to your grandma or writing a letter to your best friend. They, they, they come out differently. Uh, the church administers baptism through called pastors for the sake of order in the church. 
However, in emergencies, any Christian can and should baptize. Um, the, a lot of nurses have baptized babies you know, in, in emergency situations. Just to, you know, I, I've talked with, with a, a number of them. Um, I once went to, to the hospital uh, after a lady gave birth to her. It was her, her third child. And uh, um, her name is Janine. And I was like, well, Janine, congratulations. You know, I'm going to keep it short because, you know, you just had a baby. You don't really want to spend a lot of time. But, you know, when you're feeling up to it, we should talk about, you know, getting, you know, little guy baptized. And there was just something about her, her, her expression, like a little bit of a guilty whatever in her eyes, you know. And I was like, um, by that expression, should I infer that you've already baptized him? She's like, yes. <laughs> Is that okay? I'm like, yes, fine. <laughs> Did you baptize him in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? Mm-hmm. Did you baptize your other boys? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. So what we th- I said to her, what I'd like to do is when you guys are ready to come back to church, have you come up and we're going to tell everybody, little guy's been baptized. Thanks be to God. Salvation is his. It's like, okay. So anybody can baptize. And uh, it's, it's really only about, like I said, order. Um, that, uh, you know, we tend to try to do that in the church and have the pastor do it. You know, it, it's, you know it, it's not a big deal to have somebody else um, baptize a child or anybody for that matter. Because um, it's about what God is doing and not about what the pastor does, if that makes sense. So it's, it's about, you know, the word uh, connected to that water. So whoever believes in Jesus has eternal life, right? Uh, John 3, verse 36, uh, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. So when it comes to salvation, what's necessary for salvation? Faith. Period. Okay? Um, We've got to be really clear about that. Whoever has faith already has eternal life. Um, But anyone who believes in him will obey his command and seek to be baptized. I love the account of Philip and the Ethiopian uh, eunuch in Acts chapter 8. You know, you got Philip who is kind of minding his own business and somehow the Spirit speaks to him and says, you know, I want you to go out to the desert. And, you know, and then he gets out there and there's this Ethiopian eunuch. And this is kind of a big deal because, you know, as a eunuch, this is a guy who is very much separated. You know, there, there are laws about, you know, uh, mutilation in, in, in the Old Testament and being able to be part of the worship of God. And, uh, you know, so you've got that going on. And you also have the fact that he's Ethiopian. This guy's black, you know, and, uh, you know, it, it, that's not part of the culture there. And, uh, and the Spirit prompts Philip, talk to him. And he goes up to him, 
and he hears him reading from Isaiah. And starting from Isaiah, he explains all about Jesus. And as they're going along, there's water there. And the guy says, here's water. Why can't, what, 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 would, what would hinder me from being baptized? Because his whole relationship with God up to that moment has been hindered by the mutilation of his body. Stop the chariot. Let's go. And he baptizes him. And the spirit sweeps him away. And the Ethiopian eunuch gets back in the chariot rejoicing. And goes home with the gospel firmly planted in his heart. It's just, it's, it's just a fantastic, fantastic story about how he comes to faith and he desires this gift that God gives. And the gifts that God gives through baptism. Now, infant baptism was the accepted practice of the early church. The, the, this, the, the, I, I'm going to speak bluntly, but understand I'm not, I'm not like, you know, making fun or condemning anything that, you know, you've done or anything like that, you know, um, but the idea of um, uh, dedicating children or um, uh, an age of accountability, these are relatively new in the life of the church. You know, the, the, the early church um, baptized even infants. Um, this is from uh, an early church father named Origen. He was 185 to 254. For this reason, moreover, the church received from the apostles the tradition of baptizing infants too. And then from uh, Hippolytus, 170 to 236, uh, first you should baptize the little ones. All who can speak for themselves should speak, but for those who cannot speak, their parents should speak for them or another who belongs to their family. There's another document called the Didache. Uh, it just means the teachings. It's, it's a uh, really early first century, um, or not first century, a late first century, maybe <coughs> early second century document that basically talks about how the church conducted itself. And it also speaks of baptizing infants. This is a, uh, this is a baptismal font uh, from the Middle East. Um, no, excuse me. This is from Leptis Magna in Africa, uh, it was discovered, um, uh, it's from about 300 A.D. And, um, you know, just this little thing. Yeah, if you're going if, if to submerge somebody, um, it's going to be a little somebody in there. Okay? Um, and this also emphasizes that the church didn't receive instructions on how to baptize beyond in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is nothing that says that you have to be baptized by immersion. There's nothing that says that, you know, pouring is the right way to do it. There's nothing that says, you know, sprinkling, you know. The idea is, is, is washing. Now, I kind of like the immersion thing. I, I baptized two people in Haiti that way. 
you know, down in the Caribbean. You know, that, that, there's something beautiful about that. In fact, Luther writes about this in the Catechism, where he says that in baptism, you know, the old sinful nature goes down into the water and dies, and a new person comes to life. You know, and that's you know goes under and comes up. You know, I think that that immersion baptism very nicely symbolizes what God does in baptism. However, the word baptize, it just means to wash. There is kind of a connotation of, of submersion, you know, like when you do your dishes and you stick them in there. But I can tell you that when I wash dishes, um, if I only have a couple of them, I just turn on the tap. You know, you know and, and washing is really what the, what the verb is, is all about. The indication of why they started out baptizing kids and why did some move away from that? I think, well, in, in terms of, of um, why they started with it, it, it is really that, uh, it, you know, in the New Testament, baptism is directly connected to the covenant of circumcision. And circumcision was done for boys at eight days. Now, why people walked away from that, I think that there's probably a variety of reasons. And a lot of it has to do, I think, with how we view children. Now, we tend to view them as innocent. Although those of us who are parents, when we really think about it, we know better. <laughs> I, I promise you my kids are sinners. And I can promise you that they inherited that from their dad. <laughs> But um, I, I, I think a lot of it has to do with that. I think that there's also the sense of, um, you know, the commitment of the Christian faith and the idea that, you know, a, a child being committed to something like, you know, that could be life or death is kind of a, a heavy thought. You know, and so I, I think that there are a variety of reasons that people moved away from that. Um, Colossians 2. In Jesus, you were also circumcised in the putting off the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. So, so Paul connects that to this idea of circumcision, you know, which, again, infants. And it was, it was the, the practice of the apostles to baptize whole families. Um, you have two accounts here um, in, uh, in, in Acts chapter 16. Uh, this first one, I'm gonna. I can't remember if it was. I think it was Dorcas. But it might be Lydia. I, it, it, Paul met a, a woman uh, by the river who became a first one of the first Christians in uh, uh, Philippi. And uh, when she and the members of her household were baptized, catch that members of her household were baptized. She invited us to her home. Um, so it wasn't just that. 
the woman was baptized, her whole household. Well, we, we know that, you know, in a household, you know, at that time you would have generations. You would have the servants, you know, if the person was wealthy and she seems to be somebody who was well off. And if there were children there, they are certainly part of the, the household. Uh, in, in addition, we have in verse 33, um, this is the account of the Philippian jailer. Um, you remember that uh, Paul and Silas were, were jailed and uh, they were up all night singing and then God sent an earthquake and the Philippian jailer was about to uh, fall on his own sword because he thought all of the prisoners had escaped. And Paul says, no, 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 we're all here. Don't harm yourself. And he comes, you know, brings him out and, uh, and Paul shares the gospel with him and he comes to faith. And it says that at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds and immediately he and all his family were baptized. So this guy's a soldier. So I, I'm thinking that this is probably a guy at the oldest in his maybe mid-30s. Yeah, really easy to have little kids in the house at, at that type of an age. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 16. Um, I love this, uh, where Paul says, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone. But he, he baptized the whole household. Um, and, yeah, shoot. And, and we know that uh, that households, like I said, include kids. So arguments against infant baptism, they, they don't stand up to what the Bible actually says. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to criticize anybody or, or, or anything like that. I, I just want to explore what the scriptures say about these things. Um, sometimes people say that little kids can't believe. Um, well, Jesus says little ones can, and they can believe in him. In Matthew chapter 18, he says, If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Children can believe. In fact, Jesus often points to the faith of children as the model for us adults. Um, and sin's not just, a pro not just a doing problem, but a being problem. Um, in Psalm 51, verse 5, David writes, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. This is something that's part of the human condition. You know, that we're dead in our trespasses and sins and we need to be made alive. And baptism is one of the places where God does that work of bringing the, the, the gospel to us and creating faith in us and, you know, making us alive from the dead. So in the illustration, uh, you see that the heart is shaded. Uh, all of us are by nature sinful and we're, we are, are, are slaves to sin. You don't get apples from orange trees, and you shouldn't expect sinless children from people like, well, you. <laughs> our bodies, our minds, our relationships are all corrupted with sin. And we're not 
fit for life with Christ on our own, um, but we've sque- squeezed our hearts dry and are alienated from God. You know, we need God to be the one that intervenes in that. And one of the places he does that is through the waters of baptism. So even, even children need baptism. Uh, the Bible says that the blessings of baptism are there for you and your children. Acts 2, uh, 38 through 39. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And we're commanded to baptize all nations. And that includes infants and children. And baptism is not, it's not a magic formula. I, I mentioned this earlier. It's not like an entrance ticket into, uh, into heaven that works regardless of, of what we decide to do with our lives. Even a baptized person can reject the gift that God gives. Jesus commanded us not only to baptize, but to teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. And that means that baptism is the beginning of the relationship for a child who's baptized. Um, and it needs to be nurtured and developed and strengthened. So things like Sunday school and uh, confirmation class and Bible studies and, and all of those things as they grow up. Children's Bibles and you know, all of those wonderful things that we do to, to teach our children. So a little uh, sarcasm here. Stop, don't feed the baby. Wait until it can decide for itself what he wants to eat. <laughs> this, is, this is something that I sometimes um, have conversations with parents about that I, I, I find frustrating. You know, we're, we're not going to, you know, raise our child, you know, to necessarily believe the same things we believe. We want them to make their own decision when, when they're old enough but they're going to buy all kinds of Ohio States and, you know, Cleveland Brown stuff and teach them to be, you know, fans, right? Um, I sometimes say, so when they get teeth, are you going to teach them to brush their teeth? Eventually they will because they won't be able to stand the stink. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we only get faith and stay in the faith and grow in the faith by being connected to the faith. It, that means not only being baptized, but also hearing the word of God, learning it. Uh, you know, so if we don't teach our children uh, and bring them up in the Christian faith, um, we can't expect them to stick in it. You know, children don't grow up in a vacuum, and the, this world is not neutral. Um, have you ever heard of uh, this uh, performer named Marilyn Manson? Um, went to CBCA for a year. <laughs> What's that? Yeah, Marilyn Manson went to CBCA for a year. No. Did he? I did, I did not know that. You mean the, the scary guy? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I know that he oh. grew up in Canton and that his dad was a pastor. Yeah. Yeah. This guy's about as satanic as they come. You know, and... Uh, How does it manifest itself? Uh, look him up on the internet. You'll, you'll see it. Uh, you know. I mean, in... in in a way, his shtick 
Yeah. Oak. Yeah. I don't know what the word is. And he once, uh, he once said, um, you know, that uh, you know, the parents shouldn't ra- worry about raising their kids because he'll raise them. Mm. You know, he'll give them what they need through his music. Which is pretty awful. I mean, his music too. But um, now, one of the things that often comes up when we talk about infant baptism is what about what about babies who die before they're baptized? Because that's a real part of life. And honestly, the Bible doesn't say. Yeah, I, I will go out with a little bit of conjecture on this one because the Bible says that God is the rock, his works are perfect, and all his ways are just. He's a faithful God who does no wrong, and he is just and upright. That's Deuteronomy 32, verse 14. And, and so in a situation where we don't know, I think we have to say, God is good, and he does what's right. And he's good and merciful, and I think I'm just going to trust him. It maybe is wrong, but it seems to me if he sees fit to let them not live, not, or let them die, then he's going to see fit to take care of them. I mean, it just yeah, yeah, I'm 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 pretty comfortable with that, you know. But can I say, you know, yeah, one hundred percent. No, I, I, not if I'm going to be honest and not if I'm going to be um, faithful to the principle of I'm not going to say more or less than what the scriptures themselves say. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I will always point people to God's mercy and his kindness and, uh, and say we're, we're going we're gonna to face this moment of sorrow with hope. What do you do with the Marilyn Manson with the prevalency of infant baptism, what do you do with Marilyn Manson or Stalin or Hitler? I mean, I'm sure if we Googled it, someone like that who has lived a seemingly unrepentant life huh. all the way till their last days uh-huh. was probably baptized. What do you do? What would happen? What do you do with that? So, how are you saved? Faith. Faith. And I would suppose that, well, I mean, Marilyn Manson has flat out rejected the Christian faith. He's publicly said so. Hitler did too. Stalin did too. They said that they, they don't have the faith. They may have been baptized, but they rejected the gift. Yeah, okay. But then at the same time, we're saying that it can bring salvation. Absolutely. I think, I guess I'd say, so are you saying you can lose salvation? Does, does the word of God bring salvation? Does the word of God bring salvation? Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of Christ, right? That's Romans 10. So the word brings salvation. But does just hearing the word? It's the same type of an idea. So baptism saves. God just connected his word to the water and he does his work in that individual. But as that individual grows up, they can certainly reject it in the same way that, you know, we could share the gospel with somebody and they can reject it. Does that start to get at what you're asking? 
It does. But then I start to worry about, like, or I get confused with, oh, someone accepts the gospel, they become saved, um, baptized, and they walk away from the faith. Did, did they lose their faith? Can they do that? Yeah. Okay. So we would say that faith is not something that's permanent. I, or salvation is not permanent. I, I think that there is scriptural evidence. You know, that, you know, I think Judas is an interesting example of this. Okay. Of somebody who at one point seems pretty clearly to have believed. And then walked away. Was, you know tempted and enticed by greed you know, away from Jesus. Um, you know, and when we become disconnected from the means of grace, you know, our, our, our faith suffers and it struggles you know, as we live in our sin. There's, a, there's a, a story, that I'm pretty sure this one's apocryphal, but it, it's still a, a good illustration of uh, uh, Martin Luther going and visiting one of the members from his church who hadn't been there in a long time. And, you know, comes over, and, you know, hey, how are you doing? All right, you know. And, uh, you know, they're Germans, so, you know, they're going to go in. They sit down and they each have their beer, and they just kind of sit there quietly. And there's a fire going in the hearth. And Luther gets up, and he takes the tongs, and he pulls a coal out of the fire, and sets it on the hearth, and he puts the tongs back, he sits back, and he's just sipping his beer. And the farmer's sitting there, and he's looking, and he's watching that coal. And what's going to happen to the coal that's been pulled out of the fire? Wow. Yeah. And that's what essentially, you know, happens. And the, the farmer looks in and says, all right, pastor, I'll, I'll be at church on Sunday. You know, th this is part of the reason that it's important for us to be in church regularly receiving Jesus' gifts. Now, are there kids who grew up in the faith, who went to church every Sunday, and they end up walking away? Yeah. Sadly. It often happens when they leave home and they get out of the habit. Or it happens when... Uh, something was placed in front of them that they put their faith in or made them uh, give up on the promises. But, you know, baptism in and of, its, in and of itself is not a um, guarantee. It's not, you know, it, like I said earlier, it's not fire insurance. It's part of a relationship. And it's not just a symbol God actually does work in our lives through it. I, I think that the verses pointed to that, that God uses us to wash our sins away, to you know, raise us from the dead, you know, and connect us to Jesus and all of these things. And that's all stuff that God does through baptism because it's not just water, but it's this water that's connected with the word. Am, am I getting at it? Yeah, that's helpful. Yeah, the part I need to chew on is the, the losing salvation. I've only heard kind of the Calvinist approach of, you know, irresistible grace. And yeah. Like you, once you're saved, you're saved. Once forever. saved, always saved. Right? Yeah. yeah. So I just got to chew on that a little bit. So, the, all right, I'm going to tell you a story from my family. Yeah. So my dad was in the Navy. 
my dad grew up Lutheran and, uh, you know, that probably not surprising, you know, but he, he was never, he wasn't a pastor or anything like that. He, he was an electrician. He got his trade in the Navy and, uh, he, he was sitting on his bunk and the chaplain came in and, uh, he, my dad was a piece of work sometimes. Um, and I'm pretty sure that he was pretty wild when he was young and, uh, he, he says, you know, John, are you coming to the service on Sunday? He's like, nope. He's like, well, why not? He's like, because you're, I don't know if it was Presbyterian or, or, or what, you know, and, and, you know, I'm Lutheran. And, and he's like, no, but it'll be, yeah, I, I, it'll be okay. I'm going to talk about the word of God. And he's like, so wait a second. You believe this once saved, always saved? Yep. And if I believe in Jesus, I'm saved. Yep. Then why do I need to go to church? <laughs> the chaplain's like, uh, uh. and it wasn't a nice thing of my dad to do, or any, I mean, he's twenty something, so maybe we can forgive him, <laughs> but maybe not. <laughs> but it's well, it's. If it's true, then it's sad that the the chaplain did not have a ready answer. Right. He probably got one after that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He went and did some research. But, but you know, really, from what I understand, is that the answer is if that's where your attitude is, you are not regenerate and you're not saved. <laughs> um, but uh, that doesn't really fit either, you know, because if a person confesses with their lips and believes in their heart that Jesus is Lord. And there's there's a lot of uh, <laughs> there are a lot of people who are going to be in heaven who we're going to look at and go really you you just got in by the skin of your teeth didn't you you know this is proof God's grace <laughs> and and I will also mention since I mentioned my dad his favorite hymn was Chief of Sinners Though I Be mm. there was no you know oh, I've earned this place it's you know <laughs> the only reason I'm getting in is because Jesus shed his blood for me so. So, anything else on baptism? It's like I like I said. I know I know that this is kind of a challenging. Okay. I mean, you can ask questions later too. But now I'm going to get into the other challenging part, um, which is uh, the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is also a means of grace. Jesus instituted uh, what we know as the Lord's Supper in the context of a Passover meal. So the, the Passover is this, uh, this covenantal meal that God established when he delivered his people from bondage to Egypt. You know, it, it's this, this whole thing of, of um, he, he brought them into salvation. You know, it, it's, uh, you know, the... Uh, the uh, the time when uh, they were to take a, a year old year old lamb, uh, perfect without any blemish, and uh, they were to slaughter it and put the the blood on the doors. You know, and uh, um, you know, and then the angel of death went through and killed all the firstborn in the land, except for where the doors were marked with the blood of the lamb. 
And so Jesus takes this context of the Passover meal and he, he treats the Passover as something that is a type, a, a foreshadowing of what he himself would do. That he would be the perfect lamb of God who would give his blood so that his blood would be on us. Um, as it says in Hebrews, uh, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ uh, once for all. So we're connecting what happened in that Passover meal where they, they, they ate very specific foods that were prescribed for them um, you know, to what Jesus was about to do because this is the night he was betrayed and the next day he would be crucified. So Jesus connects his word of forgiveness to the elements of the bread and the wine. So this is Matthew chapter 26. Um, the, the words of institution are found in, in four places in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and 1 Corinthians. John does not include that, that particular detail in his gospel. So this is Matthew's account. Um, and while the ones in the, they all have little different nuances to them, but they all roughly agree uh, as a whole. So while they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them saying, drink from it all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You know, he's literally saying, you know, to drink this for the forgiveness of sins. And he speaks of them as his body and blood. Um, he also declared that his body and blood are really present in the bread and the wine for us to eat and to drink. Um, so, you know, that passage in Matthew, here's Mark's account. Uh, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for men, he said to them. Uh, Luke and he took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And then 1 Corinthians. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So one of the things that I've noticed over the years is um, that uh, some people, some denominations focus more on the uh, in remembrance of me. And others tend to focus a little bit more on the, the, the forgiveness. And others focus a little bit more on the this is you know, my body. This is my blood. In our church, we, we try to bring all three of them together, okay? Um, so we believe that this really is Jesus' body and blood. And I'm going to talk about that some more, so don't, don't get too freaked out by that. Um, but uh, 
you know, that this is something that he desires for us to do, that we actually receive forgiveness when we receive it. And that it is something that we do when we, you know, to remember Jesus. Now, I think that remembering Jesus is more than just kind of, you know, sitting back and having happy memories, you know, of your grandma and grandpa. And when we remember Jesus, it's, it's a connection back to his word and remembering what he's done for us. And that's a message that delivers his salvation to us as well. Um, now, this idea that Jesus is really present is really heavily rooted in the word is. Jesus says this is my body. This is my blood. Now, if I had a piece of bread and I said, this is my body, you would look at me and say, um, no, that is bread, right? Because I'm just, I'm just a guy. But here's the trick. Jesus isn't just a guy, is he? Jesus is God in human flesh. This is, this is the word of God in human flesh. This is the same you know, word that in the beginning, you know, let there be light, and there was light. And so we put a lot of emphasis on that word, you know, is. Um, and this was a major debating point. Um, uh, have any of you heard of Ulrich Zwingli? Uh, he was kind of the, uh, the radical precursor to John Calvin, okay? He was a little bit on the far, you know, open rebellion, you know, died in battle. At least he lived what he believed and died what he believed too. Um, but uh, um, he and Luther sat down and they, they, uh, they debated this point. And, um, and Luther was kind of a weird guy. He used to carry chalk in his pocket and he would write on walls, you know, around the house and stuff like that. You know, and he's at this meeting and he gets up and he writes in the middle of the table, hoc est corpus meum, which is Latin for this is my body, and he underscores est. And, and you know, and he says, you just can't get around this is my body. You know, are you saying that Jesus is lying? And a big part of why people have tried to move away from that is that doesn't rationally make sense. In fact, um, there's another saying um, that came about around the same time that says um, that the finite is not capable of the infinite. So you have this finite piece of bread. How is that capable of containing the infinite body of Christ. I'm going to tell you right now. I don't know. Well, but you can... How is it possible that uh, he walked out on, on the water? How right. is it possible that by touching his garment, someone is healed? I mean, you can... Where do you stop? How about this one, Larry? How is it possible for Jesus to be both God and man? 
So how is I'll it? work on that. <laughs> so how is it possible for that to be bread and body? How is it possible for it to be wine and blood? And I think, because we're talking about Jesus here, yeah. that this is, this is the rub, that Jesus is God and man right. in the incarnation, and this is the same, this is the same thing. Different, you know, different context, but it's the same miracle that Jesus comes in human form you know, to deliver grace and forgiveness and salvation, to win it for us on the cross, and that he's going to deliver it to us in these physical elements, not just, you know, any loaf of bread, not just any bottle of wine, but that bread and the wine that have been connected to his word. So it's not just bread and wine, but it's bread and wine and the word that Jesus spoke at the Lord's Supper. Well, that's why you call it, an, you institute it. I mean... He, I don't. He did it. Well, well right. But yeah. we go through that, seems to me, to make that happen. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. So we, we do the words of institution every time we have the Lord's Supper. Right. Which is pretty much every Sunday. And uh, in, it's not a magic incantation or anything like that, but it is literally speaking God's word upon these elements that God would do his work in us. Right. You somewhat tracking with me anyhow? I know put Please. So could a child who's been baptized receive communion? Yeah. Could. I, this is, yeah. There's a little bit more connected to this. Um, because in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it says that a person should uh, be able to examine themselves. In other words, you know, be prepared to confess your sins, right? And that they should recognize Jesus' body and blood in, in, in the gift that's being given here. Um, and in my mind, you know, that, that's very possible for a child. Um, maybe not an infant, you know, because the Orthodox Church, um, the Eastern Orthodox, they will take the communion elements and they'll mix it together and they'll spoon it into the, the child's mouth. I, I'm not sure I'm completely comfortable with that from what the scriptures say. But at the same time, you know, the tradition in the Roman Catholic Church is somewhere around second grade that you receive instruction and then you have first communion. The tradition in the Lutheran Church used to be that you were confirmed at eighth grade, somewhere around 14 years old, and that would be the first time that you experienced the Lord's Supper. That, that was my life. Here at Gloria Day, uh, we have a class for kids who are in um, uh, fifth grade, in they go through and they learn about what the Lord's Supper is about, what does it do, you know, and if they believe that when they get done, then they receive the Lord's Supper. But notice that these ages are all kind of arbitrary. I'm just kind of guessing. And I'm going to be really honest, there's a, there's a little girl in the church who uh, receives the Lord's Supper because the church she grew up in, they taught at around second grade. And I talked with mom and dad and I talked with the little girl and she believes that is Jesus' body and blood for the forgiveness of her sins. And I'm like, what am I supposed to do? No, you can't have God's gift. 
you know, no, I'm like, bring her up. Makes sense. Yeah. You know, and for little children who haven't received any kind of instruction, they don't know what's going on there, I would give them a blessing. Um, in fact, I do that for adults. Right, Tim? Yes. Because for a while, that's what you did when you came up, right? Mm-hmm. So... So, how this can be is a mystery that we embrace rather than say more or less than what the Bible says. We're kind of obsessed with that idea. Um, you know, we, we could spend hours more on, on this means of grace stuff and never being any closer to figuring out how it can be. It's, it's, it's a confession. It's, it's, a, uh, it's a statement of faith. In the Lord's Supper, as in baptism, God's word of forgiveness becomes a, a, a visible word for you. John chapter 6, Jesus says, For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. I, I would also point out that it wasn't too long after that that a whole bunch of his disciples left him. Because they were like, this is, this is too far for us. And uh, this is where he looks at his 12 disciples and says, you don't want to leave me too, do you? And Peter says, Lord, to whom should we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe that you are the Holy One of God. Um, so this, that section of scripture really makes no sense uh, you know, if Jesus was not giving us a preview of what we now call the Lord's Supper. You know, it, it made perfect sense after Jesus instituted what he called the, the new covenant in his blood and after his death and resurrection. So the Bible expects Christians to observe the Lord's Supper regularly. First um, Corinthians chapter eleven twenty six says, "Whoever, or excuse me, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes." So that, that's part of our liturgy. You probably recognize that. You know, just kind of whenever you do this. You know, there's kind of an implication that it's going to be regular. And in Luke chapter two, 22, he says, And he took the bread, gave it thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So there's definitely a sense that Jesus wants us to do this. So what's regularly? We, we do it every week. The church that I grew up in, um, well, go back you know, one step before I go back more. Uh, the church that I served before I came here, we did communion on the first and third Sundays. Both services, you know, and then the second and fourth Sundays, or if there was a fifth, we didn't have communion. When I was a little well, boy... What did you do in the second and fourth? We just had regular worship service with no communion. Mm. Sang hymns, prayers, sermon. Mm. Sermon could be a little bit longer. Mm. You know? um, not that I have any problem preaching a long sermon, even if there is communion. Um, when I was a little kid, I, the pastor set it up that on the first and third Sundays, the communion would be at the early service, and the second and fourth, it would be at the late, and if there was a fifth, there would not be communion that Sunday at all. But, you know if a person really wanted communion every week, they could 
skip services you know, to, to get around other than the fifth Sundays. Um, when I came here, um, they had already uh, adopted the idea of having communion uh, every week, and that was part of the, 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 the life of this congregation from a long time ago. And, uh, and it's a good thing. You know, if we believe that God really gives his gifts there, then it's good for us to, uh, to receive them regularly. Um, but different churches, even within the Lutheran church, have, have done this differently. Um, there is a strong movement in uh, the Lutheran church right now that says every week is the way to do it. But once, a long time ago, apparently somebody asked Luther, you know, how often is regular, you know, how often is do this often and he's like, well, I think that, you know, if you don't have communion twice a year, you're not a Christian. And they were like, twice a year. And so and that, there were a lot of churches that that's what they did twice a year. They had communion. Now, did Luther say have communion twice a year? He, he was kind of like, that seems like a bare minimum to me, right? You know, and so people are crazy. <laughs> it seems like it, this doesn't make any sense if you believe in that um, what it is, what it does what the what the heck they call it grace, that means of grace and you're having a church service on a regular basis, could this make I don't know I think you would have communion I think there's a really strong argument for that um the argument that I usually hear for why not to is, well, people will take it for granted, which I think is a fairly poor argument. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, that, that is kind of the, the thought that's out there is it, will, it, will, it won't be special anymore. I, I kind of look at that and say, it's Jesus' body and blood. It's, it is special, whether you take it for granted or not. In a way, special implies uh, it's already unique. Uh, it's already established biblically. I don't. I don't. You know, I wouldn't think of it as the word special applies even to it. It's not special in, in the way you, you, I would look at the definition of special. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I think it's special in the sense that. Um uh, it, it, it's something that, hmm, how do you put this? It's something wonderful to get. Right, it's, it's beyond special. Yeah. If you would. Yeah. Mean. You know, so, you know, I think of uh, like holiday meals, you know, and there are things that you only serve on the holidays, right? Mm. And people are so, they, they rejoice in that. It, but if you were to, if you were to have pumpkin pie every day, you know, because Thanksgiving's coming, right? You know, uh, if you were to have pumpkin pie every day, you'd probably get kind of sick of it. You know, and I think that that's. I'd like to try. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give it a shot. <laughs> I'll let you know when that happens. All right. But I think that that that's the logic. I'm not saying that the logic actually is logical, or that it gets to, you know where these people go with it but I, that that's that's the kind of argument that I've heard 
So there are some biblical reasons that might keep someone from coming to the Lord's Supper. An unwillingness to repent is one of them. Um, sometimes people will ask, you know, what it takes to be uh, worthy to receive the Lord's Supper. And I want to be really clear, none of us are worthy to receive uh, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. When it comes to the Lord's Supper, you, you, your worthiness does not have to do with, you know, what you have done as much as it is in believing Jesus' promise. Now, when you believe in Jesus, is that going to impact the way that you live? Yeah, it is. You know, Jesus says, the kingdom of God has come. Repent and believe the good news. And if you're not willing to repent, if you're not willing to at least acknowledge that, you know, my sin is real sin, you know, and to try to lead a godly life in response to what Jesus has done for you, you know, that, that's... Um, uh, that's a problem. You know, th this might sound familiar. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. And his word has no place in our lives. If we say we have no sin, there's the verse before it, um, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We use that in our confession quite regularly. So if we say, you know, no, no, I don't need to repent, I don't have any sin, we're basically saying that God is a liar and, and we don't need his word. You know, and if that's the case, probably should not receive the Lord's Supper. Another is an unwillingness to forgive. Um, there's a, a great account in Matthew chapter 18. Um, Jesus tells a parable uh, about a person who's forgiven a great amount, and then he goes and he finds somebody who owes him a smaller debt and uh, you know, you know, you know, insists on it. In, in the parable, the, the master, as Jesus tells the story, says, shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from the heart. God, oh boy. God expects us to... You know, to forgive. All right, where did I go? Regularly, there we go. Um, failure to recognize that Christ's body and blood are present in the bread and wine for you is a, a reason to, to not receive the Lord's Supper. This is another important passage. Um, Anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. So sometimes um, people will complain that uh, a, a church like ours will put some boundaries around the Lord's Supper. So, you know, there's a, there's a statement of faith in, in our bulletin that says this is what we believe about the Lord's Supper. You know, if this is what you believe, you're, you're welcome, you know. And, and this is the reason why. And sometimes I have people say, oh, you Lutherans, you're so unwelcoming. Well, is it a kindness to allow someone to hurt themselves? To eat and drink judgment on him or herself? 
you know, and it's actually you know intended to be an act of, of love. Well, what is the rationale that some Roman Catholic churches will not do not invite baptized people or do not encourage or, or even welcome people to the to the to the Lord's Supper? Uh, it, it's, it's partly that same passage that I just had up there because of what they specifically teach about the Lord's Supper is that the bread is no longer there, the wine is no longer there, and it is only Jesus' body and blood. That's transubstantiation. And if you don't believe that, then you don't recognize the body, and therefore you are eating and drinking judgment on yourself. Um, there's also the teaching that... But they're you know, not asking me if I do. Nope. <laughs> but the fact that you're not Roman Catholic... <laughs> Means that there's a possibility? <laughs> more than a possibility. Oh, I see. <laughs> Don't forget that the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church is that there is no salvation outside of the papacy. There are a lot of priests that would say, keep that on the down low. You know, the scriptures say this, but the official teaching of the Catholic Church is that there is no salvation apart from Rome. Apart from Rome? Yeah. Without being... The papacy. Non, Non-Roman Catholics mm-hmm. cannot be saved. Mm-hmm. It's convenient. They have been accorded like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it works out well for them. <laughs> I went to Catholic school in high school, and um, our church history teacher had to teach that portion. Mm-hmm. And I respected him highly, and he was a very kind man. In fact, he was one of the, in my opinion, one of the people that, um, one of the best Christians I've <coughs> seen. Like, he just was just such a kind, humble man. And he cried as he shared that, that lesson, mm. because he knew that I was not Catholic. Yeah. And I was listening to it, and kind of cried. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of those, they don't brag about that teaching, for sure. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, this, is, this is the one that I mentioned earlier. Um, if a person's not prepared to examine him, him or herself, uh, they should not receive the Lord's Supper. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 28, uh, a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. And we understand that to be a kind of confession of sins and recognizing your, your need for what God is promising there. So we thank and praise our Savior who knows how important it is for us to have these external means to experience his grace and forgiveness. John chapter 2, verse 25, He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. Um, Jesus was fully one of us. He is fully one of us. Um, he's still fully human and still fully God. Uh, he knows exactly what we are like as humans. And it helps to be able to see things and touch things. And so he gave us an intimate way to understand and receive his grace He didn't just speak it to us. He did speak it to us, but he didn't just speak it to us. He brings it to us in the waters of holy baptism. 
He feeds us with the bread of life from uh, heaven, his own body and blood given and shed for us for the forgiveness of sins. That the love of God, that amazing grace um, can never be completely understood. It can only be received with thanksgiving and praise. So if you hang around me long enough at some point, uh, you, you will hear me say, if you want to know what it feels like to be forgiven, it feels like water poured on your head. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that, you know, for the rest of your life, when you feel water, it's a reminder of what God did for you there. If you want to know what forgiveness tastes like, it tastes like almost bread and cheap wine. gives you that in, in order to you know, set that in you, you know, to deliver those things to you in a way that, that, that's tangible, that you can feel. In my, uh, in my previous church, um, we used to, uh, when I first got there, we used a burgundy wine for the Lord's Supper. You, you familiar with burgundy wine? very dry wine, right? It's... Well, it's heavier. It's very, yeah. And uh, it's got some pucker to it. <laughs> it's like, hmm. Yeah, and... Uh, yeah, so here are kids. I, I, I remember one confirmation Sunday. This boy's all in white. This is when I learned to let the kids taste the wine before cause Sunday. <laughs> Common cup, take the cup and pour it, and, you know, and, and it goes in his mouth, and his eyes got really big, and it just literally comes right down, right down his gown. Because he's just like, it was so terrible. <laughs> you know, and from then we're like, you know what, maybe we should get some sweet wine. <laughs> you know, just make it a little bit more accessible. Um, the wine should be a grape wine, that's what Jesus used. That they didn't have raspberry wine and all this crazy stuff, and it is wine. Um, yeah, the uh, you think of Middle Eastern um, Israel. You know, if you squished it in the morning by evening, you know you've got alcohol content. That's that's how fermentation works, and and they knew the difference between grape juice and wine, um, and and you know the, the word is there. Um, I do have a question on the common cup versus the yeah. little plastic cup. Yeah, okay. How that evo either evolved or and or why. I yeah. Do I have an answer? This is an so easy answer. It is an easy answer, oh, actually. <laughs> it goes back to our brains being bigger than our faith. So... Sometime in uh, mid to late 1800s, they discovered germs, right? Mm -hmm. you, you got Louis Pasteur and you know, all of you know, Madame Curie doing all this amazing work and discovering all these microorganisms and all this wonderful stuff that we didn't know about before then. And they realized that we can spread germs you know, you know, by sharing a cup and things like that. Um, and uh, 
um, there was a, a thought that, well, probably what we ought to do is use a bunch of little cups. And, uh, and, and so people started doing that. And it was around then also uh, that uh, um, they decided that uh, grape juice was okay too. Um, and I'm a little bit more comfortable with that, but the rationale uh, I think is problematic. And the history is problematic. Um, you know, Welch, Welch's grape juice was a big, um, oh, uh, what's the anti-alcohol movement? Um, suffrage. Suffrage, prohibition. No, prohibition, prohibition, yeah. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and he was a big promote, promoter of prohibition. And, uh, and, oh, by the way, for your communion uh, convenience, I have this great product for you. Um, yeah. So, um, before that, you know, it was all common cup. It, you should notice that um, most communion chalices are made out of silver and gold. Right. And if you go back to your chemistry class, you might remember that those were called noble metals. They're not called noble metals only because you know, the nobility cherished them, but they're called noble metals also because they tend to resist germs. Oh, really? Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and so, you know, we, we use these, these fancy, you know, goblets and stuff, but there's actually, you know, some science behind it, hmm. you know, not intentionally, but... You know, that's how it ended up, you know, working out. Mm -hmm. And uh, and wine has this wonderful uh, property in it called, you know, alcohol. And uh, strong wine has enough alcohol to kill germs. And, uh, um, you know, so I, I'm actually a big proponent of the common cup. I think that that fits more closely with what Jesus experienced. I think it fits more closely with the history. But at the same time, um, people have been using individual cups for it. What did they do before the plastic here? Glass. Oh, glass. They were little glass, oh, not sure. quite shot glasses, but Never you know. thought about that, yeah. yeah. I remember when I was a little kid, I remember when they were introduced in the church that, that, that I went to, and it was in the 1980s, and I'll tell you what, what brought it in. AIDS. 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 Everybody was terrified. Mm. You know, you you two are probably a little too young to remember this when AIDS was something that was brand new. Um, but you know, there were a lot of people that were scared. You know, that by sharing a cup or you know whatever that you might get AIDS from somebody. Well, you know, now we know that it doesn't spread that way. Um, the same way that we know that COVID does not spread that way. Um, but uh, um, that fear led people to say, you know, people who had not embraced this idea uh, to say, you know, well, maybe we should offer an option. Mm. And for a lot of people, you know, it really comes down to the, the germ thing. So. Uh, what, about, what do we do with Jesus' baptism? He was, he was baptized, I have no idea, 18, I don't know, 22, something like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. And obviously wasn't, there wasn't an infant baptism. No, but he was circumcised in eight days. He was circumcised in eight days, I mean. Right. 
because he was Jewish. And uh, um, so the way that I understand Jesus' baptism, uh, first of all, it's not the same baptism because he hadn't instituted baptism yet. Right? That's after the resurrection that he says, go make disciples, baptizing and teaching. And so the baptism that he got was John's baptism, which is a baptism for, of repentance. And I like this question because, you know, you know, what do we do with Jesus' baptism? Because what sins did Jesus have to repent? Yours. I, I think that, you know, when he is baptized, this is the beginning of his ministry. That he goes down into the water to stand with sinners. To be repentant for our sins. And, and to start to bear that burden to the cross. Any other questions? All right. I don't think I've pulled this one on this class yet. What are, this, this, this is a good dad joke. You need this one, right? What do one skunk say to the other? You smell. Let us spray. <laughs> Lord God, Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity to uh, be here with these wonderful people and to talk about your means of grace. And I pray, Lord, that you would bless us and that you would help us to walk in your word and to trust your promises and to live um, by faith. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So just so you know, I am a whole session behind. Um, and um, we're a little bit stuck with time because of the way the Thanksgiving works and all of that stuff. And what I am intending to do is next next week we'll go through the Lord's Prayer. And then the next last two sessions are supposed to be the Ten Commandments. And I'm thinking about just kind of giving the Ten Commandments a little bit of short shrift. Yeah, yeah. what the heck? They've been around a long time. <laughs> I, I think that people I do think that people tend to understand the law better than the gospel. And I won't just, you know, ignore it. But I won't, I, I'm going to, I think I'm going to just try to fly through that and not spend as much time elaborating. Unless you really want to try to find a time to, to do another session. Um, well, when was the last session scheduled? Uh, it, it, it's scheduled for uh, two weeks from tonight. So today's the 3rd to the 17th. Okay. So the, the, so that would be, that's okay. when the last one is scheduled. It's, and then the week after that is the Wednesday of Thanksgiving, right, right. in which we have a worship service that evening. Right. Okay. Well, we will. Well, we could always start a little early. Maybe we could start at 6.30 instead of 7. Would that work for you guys? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You want to do that across the next two weeks and try to yes. rock some stuff out? 6.30 next week? 6.30? If that's if we can't do the, we will be gone. We'll be here the 17th, but not after that we'll be traveling, so. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, you know, okay, then we'll do that. Great. Okay. Very good. Pastor, Thanks. One more question. Yeah. What happens after these classes? Like, is it just like a 
after these classes, I suppose you do have a decision to make. You know, whether you want to be you know, part of the church or not. Like, do, you, do you have interviews with each of us? Like, what, is there some type of it, it, I'll talk with you. <laughs> if you're like, you know, yeah, I'm all in. You know, yeah. what, what, you, what you taught, I, I believe it. You know, and I'll be like, all right. Then we will, uh, you know, have a, uh, a service where you'll do um, uh, like the confirmation vows. Were you here at confirmation Sunday by any chance? Yeah. 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 And so ask you those same questions. Do you believe that, you know, we're teaching biblical stuff? You know, that the stuff that I taught you, the stuff that we pulled from the small catechism, you know, is faithful and true. You know, that you intend to live in this faith. That you intend to suffer all, even death, rather than turn away from it, you know. Um, and, I, and I'll give you that um, that liturgy, you know, so that you can look at that before you you, know, you have to stand up in front of the church and answer those questions, because you should think about them. But uh, you know, and then we, we would set up a time for that to happen. You know, and probably would prefer to do that as a group if you know anybody other than you point. <laughs> but that being said um, if we get to the end of the class and you're like boy this was really interesting but I don't buy it okay thanks for being here please keep coming to church I love having you here you know so good Is this related to Robbie Zacharias? No. Oh, he's, okay. he's just saying, how should we that, that, look that at this 